Shadow Talk, Digital Shadow's weekly cyber threat intelligence and information security podcast. My name is Nicole, and I'm happy to be joined by my colleagues, Ivan and Rick. How are you guys doing? Yeah, doing great. Thanks for having me. Doing well. Very well. So as per usual, it's been a busy week here at Digital Shadows and in CTI in general. This week, we've actually seen an MSP called Net Standard. They shut down their cloud services to respond to a cyber attack. There's no word yet as to the type of cyber attack, although there are rumors in the InfraSec community that it may be related to ransomware. And some people are actually wondering if it has anything to do with a thread that was published earlier this month on a Russian-speaking cyber criminal forum, Exploit, where a threat actor claimed to have access to a US-based MSP and was looking for ideas on how to monetize that access. And we haven't really seen a lot of information come out of after that. So we'll probably have to wait and see, which is challenging to do, I think, in InfoSec and CTI in general. It's like waiting for something bad to happen. But another interesting story this week, there's a new cyber criminal service, and it's called Robin Banks. And it's being referred to as a phishing as a service platform that offers phishing kits with pre-made templates. And they're created to target several well-known banks like Citibank, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and much more. The threat actors behind this service actually have a tiered pricing model. And if you look at the pictures, Bleeping Computer did a report, the dashboard is really sophisticated and it's eerily similar to what you might find in a legitimate SaaS platform. And I just thought it was, it's always interesting to see how the cyber criminal market has really evolved over time and how they often operate like a legitimate business, which is something that we're actually going to talk about later on in today's episode. Getting on to our first topic, last week we actually saw reports suggesting the IT security giant Entrust suffered a ransomware attack. Similar to the attack on the MSP, Entrust has confirmed that they did suffer an attack, but did not confirm if it was related to ransomware. The company has not yet been named on any ransomware leak site, but given the fact that Entrust is a large cybersecurity vendor, Rick, what is the potential impact of this attack? Yeah, I mean, I'd say if I was an Entrust customer right now, I would, um, I would be, I would be concerned. You know, there's several things that come to mind when I see these types of things. One, you get a flashback of the Okta breach in Q1 and, you know, that was spinning people up. And interest is an old school cybersecurity vendor, does stuff with identity, does stuff with encryption, uh, does things with key management, which is which is particularly worrisome in, in this case. They don't say what was, you know, I, I looked at the letter that Bleeding, uh, Bleeding Computer got and, you know, it had all the tick boxes in it. it, had found no indication, it had no evidence. They say some files were taken from the internal systems, but they don't, they don't say what that was, which is worrisome. And the other thing in it, you know, if I was to put like a breach notification pro tip list out is, you know, they say, you know, they'll contact you if you were impacted. You know, I would rather it be, we're going to contact you to tell you you're not impacted because out of office mail rejects and things like that, you might be sitting here, you know, waiting and waiting to see if am I going to get the notification? Who are they sending it to? Are they sending it to an employee that's not in? not there anymore and it bounces and things like that. So if if I was building out a playbook for doing notification, I would definitely put in there, yeah, we will contact you and say you are not impacted and we will follow up if you were just to make someone rest a little bit easier there. They also have the typical 
you know, we value uh, the relationship and serious. I mean, I understand that the language in these notification letters is guided by outside counsel and there's constraints and things that you have there. Obviously, Octa didn't do the best job in, in some of the work that they did in their notifications um, earlier on in the year with the timelines and things along those lines. So I, I, I think the impact of it, it depends on what was stolen. And, and we just don't know at this point what was stolen. Yeah, that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's always challenging in InfoSec to be to have to wait because then even if you get the notification, it's like, did I get, is there a possibility this could impact my organization before I'm notified? It's it's a stressful situation for everybody out there that's an interest customer, especially I, with the hardware security modules that, that they do. I was having flashbacks when early in my career I did instant response and we used in-case to do forensics and we had an HSM on campus. I worked at um, a, a university to an infosec, which was a fun experience. And, you know, we had to use the HSM to go out and collect samples to do the investigations on hosts, forensic investigations and things along those lines. So anytime key management, stuff like that is always worrisome. And the other thought that I had on this was, you know, there's two routes that it could be. I mean, we're talking about ransomware right now, at least that's what the the sidelines are saying, but and I have no, I have no data to support this statement, so this isn't like a high confidence statement. But let's just say I, I was going after interest in the sense of the way China went after RSA and Secure ID, or when Bit Nine now Carbon Black was compromised. You know, wouldn't it be a nice thing to say, act like I was a ransomware actor, right? And you know, hey, I, I, I got some kind of material based on customer, whatever it is that I'm stealing from the customers, and I'm going to use it for there. Meanwhile, I'm going to pretend that I'm a, I'm a ransomware actor. So again, I have no, I have no data to suggest that's the case, but I would say is I wouldn't just assume this is just a cyber criminal or that this is an extortion actor that's in the mix. There could be more dubious intentions there and, you know, only time will tell. And hopefully we'll see a forensic report come out, you know, Okta, Okta released some of that information um, as they went through to give a little bit more details, but I would definitely be reaching out to my client success person at Intrust to confirm if I was in scope of this intrusion or not, if, if, if I was a listener and used that, that any of their solutions. Yeah, that was definitely uh, an immediate thought of mine when I was reading through what happened is it could be a perfect target for cyber espionage. Um, but given the fact that Entrust has a massive customer base to include like MasterCard, Visa, ServiceNow, as well as a lot of U.S government agencies, is it realistically possible the attackers will use information stolen from this attack in future attacks, either against Entrust or their customer base? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it all depends on what was what was taken. Um, and hopefully, you know, if you're doing incident response, and I've been involved in incident response in some public breaches, you know, you, the first thing you want, and we see it in our customer base too, right? Our customers want to know, hey, we found something out on the dark web. They want to be able to validate it if this is like a legitimate database, usernames and passwords. So, you know, right now they're in the mode of like, let's understand the scope of the intrusion, what data was taken. This is also, and we've talked about this on Shadow Talk before, like, you know, when you see the language of found no indication, it doesn't make me feel better because found indication could mean A, you have comprehensive you know, visibility into your environment and you found no indication, or it could be you don't have the right tools or the tools were misconfigured or the logs weren't running and you found no indication as a result there. So I think the key thing as far as the impact goes is you know, what was the stolen data, but I, I definitely would be, I would have a response 
team going on this, you know, I would, I would try to understand the software that I'm using, get what information, and hopefully they're providing more information to customers that are impacted on it. You know, I would kind of assume that I'm in scope until I can confirm that I am not in scope. I think that's a good way to go. So the attackers allegedly purchased stolen credentials to gain access into interest network. Now, this is not confirmed, so we can't say with high confidence. There are reports that that's how they gained that initial access. Are you surprised by this, Rick? Yeah, again, we don't know for sure. But as we at Digital Shadows and Photon Research have reported on for many years now, the initial access broker seen as legit. You know, people's whole job is is gaining access and then selling that access to a third party to do whatever it is they may want to do. So you can make two two guesses when when it were these days. I'd make two guesses as far as you know initial access would be. You know, one is a phishing email, and that's how somebody got in, and that could have been through an initial access broker. It could have just been the threat actor themselves. And then, of course, the other that that we see so much is you know initial access through a misconfigured, a non patched remote service, a VPN, OWA, you know, we, we report on that stuff all the time. So the typical initial access vectors are, are always the same. So you could, you could, it's not like they, they need a bunch of, they don't need days a lot of times to get into environments and things like that. And if I could just buy access to get in, that's cool. Even if I'm a nation state actor, like why burn an day if someone's selling initial access and then I can get in that way as well, or leak it out that that's how I got in. So it is tough to tell, right? We're Monday, we're Monday morning quarterbacking intrusions and breaches because we don't have the full picture there. But I would definitely be concerned if I was an interest customer. Yeah, we've we've I've definitely seen a lot of threat actors will take def- the the easiest route that they can because why not save some time. So moving on to another topic. We don't actually discuss this topic as much, but it actually is inside the bounds of digital risk protection, which is financial fraud. A former Coinbase manager, as well as two other individuals, were charged with wire fraud and insider trading. Ivan, could you give us an overview of what happened? Sure, yeah. So it was recently reported that the Department of Justice, they charged uh, these individuals with a fraud conspiracy and a scheme to commit insider trading. So this was actually the first case of its kind, and it's likely that this could set a precedent for you know crypto and NTF fraud. So essentially what happened was that uh, a manager of Coinbase they were accused of abusing their insider knowledge to make investments that were guaranteed to result in a profit. For example, the manager knew when Coinbase was planning to add a crypto wallet to its assets before it was announced. So he would get these two conspirators uh, to purchase large amounts of this asset before they were added to Coinbase. So then whenever they were added, these coins would raise in value significantly. And then they did that with like 25 different wallets and they allegedly made about $1.5 million from this scheme. Wow, that's a lot of money. So this case is really significant as it's it's really the first of its kind, having insider trading, but involving cryptocurrency. If you remember a few years back, the creator of Silk Road, which was a black market on the dark web, if you're not familiar with Silk Hey, do you want to know a fun fact about the, uh, the Silk Road? I am a University of Texas Dallas alumni, and the Dread Pirate Scott... Uh, the creator of the Silk Road is actually alumni from UT Dallas. I, I don't know if you guys knew that. You're also in DFW as well. Um, and at one point, there was something on the website that talked about him, maybe some student group that he was in. He didn't finish the the school there, but 
yeah, that's the most infamous student, I think, from the University of Texas at Dallas. I did not know that. Actually, I didn't even know that he was from Texas. But yeah, he was he, he was also in Austin a bit before he went to California, which is where they I think it was San Francisco when they arrested him, which is a really cool documentary on his rest. They have it on video uh, surveillance video from the library and how one agent distracted him one way he turned around and then they got his laptop before he could you know, lock his laptop down so they couldn't get into it. So, yeah, there's a really cool uh, story with the Secret Service agent that was investigated there. Anyway, we're going to go down on the rabbit hole of the Silk Road and our, our friend, uh, was it Russ Ulbrich? Russ Ulbrich. Um, but yeah, cool story. If you guys want to check it out, listeners. That is a really cool story. Um, I, I read a lot about it, but I haven't seen any documentary. So I'll have to go back and, and watch it. But the reason I brought it up is if you remember that case, it was really important in history because it really like redefined the landscape and it set the scene for future cases. And he was given like a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Oh my God. They hammered him so hard. He got it rough. And it was, yeah, it was almost like they were just trying to make an example. So Ivan, do you think this is insider trading case could have a similar impact? And do you think it could potentially defer future crypto related fraud? Yeah. You know, this is a case that will definitely could definitely set a precedent for fraud in the crypto world. It's, it's one case that, you know, could likely snowball and we could see a lot more prosecutions happening in the in the near future. Insider trading is a big issue in the crypto world and many fraudsters, they probably thought that, you know, they could get away with it with without any consequences or repercussions. So even if this ruling doesn't lead to that many arrests or indictments, it can still act as a powerful deterrent to prevent future crypto crimes from happening mainly because people will see this happening and they're like, oh, you know, maybe this could happen to me too. So maybe I shouldn't get involved in that. I think it, uh, I think it gives, because, you know, the, the U.S. regulators are trying to come up with their strategies and what regulations are going to be there. And then if you look at the broader the crypto markets and, you know, people that are getting, that are losing, you know, they, they thought it was, what did, uh, what did our friend Matt Damon say? Fortune favors the bold, I believe, is the crypto commercial that he was on. But this will just be another reason, um, which, and I think there's regulation that's needed. But, you know, I, I bet as the regulators, if it's the SEC, there's different agencies that could end up regulating it, depending if it's a commodity or not. This will just be like a bullet in, hey, here's justification for it. Here's another example of how people are being defrauded and things like that. So uh, yeah, I agree, Ivan. I think this will have implications for sure. Yeah, hopefully we can see some type of regulation or something that, that could prevent like all of the illegal rug pulls. And or I guess they're not illegal yet because there's no regulations, but all of the, right. you know, the crypto yeah. rug pulls and things like that, or, or even like, you know, a lot of times we'll see, you know, somebody with a lot of influence will you know promote a certain coin and then and then they'll to the moon leave and then <laughs> and then there goes the price of that but how do you guys think it will impact the cryptocurrency and and the nft landscape well i think that the crypto and the nft landscape they you know like we were talking about they sat in this little bubble where they thought that they were untouchable from any type of regulation and this indictment is basically like a wake-up call to the industry you know, fraud is fraud. It doesn't matter if it's conducted with real money or cryptocurrencies. So I think we'll begin to see law enforcement agencies cracking down on these types of schemes. 
But that being said, you know, if we're talking about the cyber threat landscape, it's unlikely that it will deter cyber criminals from continuing to use any type of cyber, uh, cryptocurrency. But it could have a big effect on stopping fraud from happening in the future, or at least minimizing how often it happens. I agree. Or at least a lot of the low-level stuff that may be going on. So moving on to our next topic, going back onto the topic of ransomware. Uh, which is a topic, which, by the way, is a topic that we never discuss, right? We're also bringing up a... Re- oh, sorry. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. One of the topics we don't get to discuss that much on Shadow Talk. <laughs> not not every week or anything. Um so there's a, a cyber criminal malware author with the alias that I'm probably going to mispronounce. I'm going to go with Cerebrate, was recently promoting the second version of Redeemer, which is a ransomware builder. And if you're not familiar with a ransomware builder, it's a little bit different than a typical piece of malware that is ransomware. It actually is a piece of software that can create custom ransomware for its users. So although we haven't seen widespread use of of this tool. Redeemer is free to use and doesn't have any technical or geographical prerequisites. The only catch is that affiliates have to pay the malware author 20% of their ransom demands. So how how is this different from traditional affiliate programs that we see in in the ransomware landscape? And I'll just open this up to both of you if you have answers. So what I would say is, first of all, is accessibility. Uh, when we're talking about these big affiliate programs, let's say Lockbit, you, you can't just get into the Lockbit and become an affiliate if if you just want to. You have to prove yourself. You have to show that you have the skills. You have to show that you are loyal to them, that you're not going to be a bad influence on the image of the group. or that. And you also have to follow all the rules that they have. Lockbit has a full page of rules saying like you cannot tar- target critical infrastructure. You cannot target these sectors. You cannot target these geographies. So there's a lot of admins related things when it comes to big uh, ransomware groups. They basically operate like a business. And then this, this in this case, if they're just using a builder, they can build their own, they can build whatever they want to do and they conduct, they conduct their own attacks and they are in control of the whole operation, essentially. They just have to share the profits with the developers. So it gives them a lot more freedom, even if it's not as much of a reliable ransomware as Lockbit is. And of course, if you are working for a big corporation like Lockbit, I'm calling them a corporation because they call themselves a business. So they also give their affiliates a lot of support and they also have the website where you can extort victims. So I would say that the more serious cyber criminals are probably probably going to be involved in these bigger groups. But this is also a, a segue into working for a big ransomware group, you could say. Yeah, I have to agree. It definitely lowers the barriers to entry. But in the past... Other ransomware builders such as Chaos and Thanos have subsequently led to new ransomware groups emerging. Do you think it's realistically possible we will see this happen with Redeemer? Yeah, it's uh, definitely possible. A lot of ransomware groups are very opportunistic. And if they can take this builder and build something that's reliable and then they can make their own data leakage websites and then they, they exfiltrate data as well, they have the whole package. They have, you know... The, the whole ransomware offering, the double extortion that's really popular nowadays. And, you know, we're seeing all types of threat actors trying to get into this threat landscape because there's a lot of money involved. So I wouldn't be surprised to see groups taking advantage of this to try to launch any big operations. Yeah. One thing I thought was interesting with Redeemer is the malware author actually holds the 
master key, which is used by the affiliate. It's paired with their private key to be able to use the, the, the to be able to create the decryptor. So there is a little bit of dependency on the malware author, but he did say he or she in the future, it is a realistic possibility that the code would be would be released publicly. But I just kept thinking this type of like hands off business model used by Cerebrate, it reminds me of how Chick-fil-A actually runs their franchisee model or their franchise model. Slightly different because with Chick-fil-A, you know, there's an upfront fee that you have to pay. I think it's like $10,000. But then after that, the franchisees are really responsible for everything else. They're responsible for securing the real estate, buying the inventory, everything. Chick-fil-A is very hands-off. And I feel like, as we were talking about earlier, a lot of ransomware groups are in really just cyber criminal groups are starting to run like legitimate businesses. And with Redeemer being free to, to use, affiliates, you know, they still have to spend time and potentially money to carry out their attacks if they don't have the type of support that maybe like Lockbit has. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I see the the parallels there. You've got the you got the franchises that provide all kinds of support, and then there's others where you just buy the logo essentially, and then you get the instructions on how to prepare the food consistently, and then everything else is you know roll your own type of thing. And I mean, we say this all the time: the parallels between private sector businesses and the criminal underground are, are so much there. But every time I see a good example like this, I just kind of like, dang, man, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't be surprised because we see it all the time. But it, it is it is crazy how parallel it is and just how much this is about making money and having the least amount of cost as possible to make that money and get it while it's hot, too. Because, you know, as we've seen on some of these ransomware groups in particular, at least the names they use or the cutouts they use, many of them have short runs before they rebrand and things along those lines. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's always it's always funny to kind of like check your personal biases because, you know, some people might think in their head that, you know, cyber criminals are working in some, you know, basement somewhere and <laughs> they're, you know, hacking one off things and this and that when in actuality it's like, you know, like we said, it's like a legitimate business operation. And we even saw with the Conti leaks, you know, they even have like PTO sometimes and vacation days and weekends. So it's always really interesting um, to see how the market's evolving. One thing on the uh, one thing on the Conti leaks, because I was just talking to somebody in our office today that weren't familiar with Conti leaks, like talk about biases or, you know, we're in this stuff all the time. A lot of people don't even know about the Conti leaks. And, you know, I was pointing this individual. I was like, yeah, you can see vacation time. They're using Zoom info as an example, which a lot of cybersecurity, not just cybersecurity vendors, vendors in general, technology companies that are selling use Zoom info to understand demographics, and target markets and, and the leaders and verticals and things along those lines. So, again, you know, the Conti leaks themselves I was like, dang, I can't believe this. But, you know, deep in my heart, I know it's true. It just kind of validated some of that stuff that's out there. So it, you know, the whole, you know, 800 pound hacker in a basement type of thing is, you know, don't be lulled into thinking that's who we're up against. It is funny how, you know, we mention things all the time and then we have to realize that everyone is down in the weeds with us. So that's a good point. So that pretty much concludes this this episode of Shadow Talk. Um, if you haven't been to our blog recently there's a lot of great 
new blogs on there. Uh, I think today we released one on Holy Ghost's bargain basement approach to ransomware, which is a really good read. There's also the July edition of what we're reading this month and how to paint your best cyber threat landscape. That one was written by Stefano and he actually uh, quoted my framework. So I'm not biased at all to include that one. In the top three, I did notice. I noticed that he gave the uh, stairways a uh, a shout out there. Yeah, I was like, yes. <laughs> so if you haven't if you haven't had time to read those, go ahead and navigate over there. Until next time.